Chaos has broken out in Afghanistan as U.S. forces rush for the exits and evacuate as many Americans and Afghan allies as possible. The Taliban marched across the country and all but captured the capital city of Kabul in a 10-day campaign that caught our political and military class completely flat-footed. But did you catch the spin in my first sentence, like a little bit of a white lie? Chaos has broken out, which of course implies that order had ever existed, and things were not chaotic in Afghanistan for 20 years. You know, one of my loved ones asked me the other night about the fall of Kabul. They asked, is there going to be another 9-11 now? At that moment, I didn't answer. I took a big gulp of my beer and I changed the channel swiftly from news to baseball. What I wanted to say was my favorite line from the movie V for Vendetta, which is, would you prefer a lie or the truth? Would you prefer a lie or the truth? That's what we're going to talk about today with Fiona Harrigan, assistant editor for Reason, a contributor to Young Voices with a focus on Afghanistan. Her work can be found in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, The National Interest, uh, and the Center for Responsible Statecraft. If you haven't already, do go ahead and subscribe to the show here on YouTube or your podcatcher. We have new episodes every Thursday and bonus content on the YouTube channel. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89 and do follow Rightly on Twitter. Insta, TikTok, and Facebook at RightlyAJ. All right, let's do the show. I'm Stephen Kent, and this is Right Now. So Fiona, how would you have answered that question? Because I was sort of at a loss for words. Is there going to be another 9-11 now just because the U.S. rapidly leaves Afghanistan or leaves Afghanistan at all? I think... For a foreign policy expert or for me to answer that question, it's going to be a resounding, we don't know and, and we can't know right now. To say that there will be another 9-11 is just impossible given that we don't exactly know how the Taliban is going to govern the country. They've said that they won't allow al-Qaeda or similar terror cells to stage attacks from Afghanistan. We don't know if they're going to keep that promise or any of the other ones that they've staged on television so far. But I do think that there's an important broader point to keep in mind. And Justin Amash alluded to this when he uh, he wrote his thoughts uh, mm. on Afghanistan for Barry Weiss's uh, Substack last week. Uh, this closing line, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, we must accept the uncertainty that comes in a world that we cannot control. That, and I think that's the bottom line here. That's Absolutely. the entire nature of the war on terror right. is a war on uncertainty, a war on anything that makes people uncomfortable. And that's what has allowed it to expand so broadly, yes. extend so longly, um, and just encompass so many a aspects of our life, whether it's terrorism abroad or it's the virus here at home. Right. It's all part of the same thing, which is we're trying to wage a war on uncertainty and control everything. Like the, the I mentioned like V for Vendetta, would you prefer a lie or the truth? The truth is you cannot stop bad things from happening all the time. 9-11 was the result of an intelligence failure and federal agencies and, and bureaucracies not communicating to one another about what they knew was going on in the world. And I think more broadly than that, it's difficult to pinpoint any of these things geographically. You know, we like to think of a terror haven that we can point to and, and bomb and, and commit airstrikes against, kill the leaders who are present there. But the truth of the matter is that although bin Laden was based in Afghanistan, Germany played a major part in 9-11 as well, right? The people who carried out the attacks were trained in Hamburg, Germany. They were in Boston and Newark for a week leading up to the attacks. 
just because something had roots in Afghanistan doesn't mean that if we cut it off at Afghanistan, that there isn't going to be another tragedy like that. And now there are certain foreign policy experts who are pointing to other parts of the world as greater strategic interests, saying, you know, there hasn't been a terror attack that's been rooted in a group that's based in Afghanistan since 9-11. There have been attacks from Iraq and, and from Syria-based groups. Yeah, and there's a lie that is sort of propagated throughout American life that there have been no attacks on the United States soil since 9-11 as a result of our being deployed overseas and fighting these wars. It really shows you how effective U.S. propaganda has been at sort of just becoming like the the common speak of everyday people. We just sort of believe that this entire venture has worked, and it, it hasn't. That's right. You know, I, I think there, and we see this in in some of the communications and some of the information and interviews that have been leaked in, during the twenty year war in Afghanistan. That you know, as the mission changed and as we did manage to hobble al-Qaeda and oust the 9-11 era Taliban from power in Afghanistan, that we've had to increasingly rely on a nation-building uh, mission to justify why we've remained in Afghanistan and, and rely on this kind of ghost of a threat in order to convince the American public that this is something we need to fund with lives and, and tax dollars. Yeah, I mean, the, the instances of like Islamic attacks here at home since 9-11 that I just made a note of coming in, the Fort Hood shooting, the Boston bombing, the San Bernardino shooting by Saeed Farouk, Omar Mateen in Orlando, the failed shoe bomber Richard Reed, the underwear bomber uh, Umar Farouk Abdul. Like this stuff has persisted um, for the past 20 years. It's just not true that Afghanistan and our having boots on the ground there has changed anything fundamental. But I think that kind of goes to the whole point that most Americans do not really distinguish between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, maybe for, for right or for wrong, right? Like the, the Taliban are a um, barbaric organization. They engage in terrorism within their country, and they've always helped uh, historically to export it. But is it worth trying to drive home those distinctions between what the Taliban functions as and how international terror orgs relate to them? I do think so. You know, Al-Qaeda, it's difficult to say that we need to legitimize them, just given the atrocities that they've carried out. The Taliban, they have had um, you know, they've, they've had aims of governance. And now, especially as we're trying to get Americans and American allies out of Afghanistan, I think it's going to be necessary for us to see them at least in some vein of legitimacy. Otherwise, it's just going to be a continued bloodbath as we try to evacuate the people we need to evacuate from Afghanistan moving forward. I find it kind of comedic that they, they want legitimacy of any kind on the global stage. Uh, Nikki Haley wrote in the Washington Post just the other day, um, that Joe Biden needs to stand his ground on not recognizing the Taliban as a governing body. What do you think about that, that question that we have to face here in the days, weeks, months ahead? You know, I think first and foremost, it's important to note that the Taliban does want to be taken seriously, regionally especially. They've been sending out foreign policy delegations and engaging in negotiations and diplomatic exchanges, even with countries that they previously didn't have relations with uh, around the 9-11 era. India, I believe, being one major recent example. That sort of thing can be concerning, right, to see them engaging with parties like Iran and parties like China. We think of them as just another renegade regional actor with malignant aims. 
that largely might be true, and, and we don't need to like what they're doing in Afghanistan. I don't know specifically if it's going to be beneficial for us to recognize them or not. I think that's a, a political calculus that will become clearer as their aims for governance become clearer, as they either make good or kind of violate the promises they've made about the treatment of women and about the treatment of Afghans who did help the U.S. military. It's been kind of pathetic watching the Taliban try to push to Western media this sort of like semi-woke light language about how they're going to govern, that they're going to uh, to be an inclusive version of the Taliban in the 21st century, not like we're familiar with from the 90s, um, who rule brutally uh, and regressively. And I, 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 I sort of just feel like we are going to take them at their word and walk right into a situation where they do not live up to those expectations at all. Um, it's it's the epitome of wishful thinking. I, I tend to agree with Nikki Haley that there is nothing in it for us recognizing these people. Joe Biden said that they would not recognize a Taliban administration that was taken by the force of a gun when we had quote unquote democratic elections in Afghanistan, whether or not you really believe that they were democratic elections that had any sort of uh, basis in, in honesty or reality. You know, it's, it's all very complicated calculus, as I mentioned. Uh, the Taliban, they said that they would essentially allow women to have rights contingent with Sharia law. Contingent, contingent <laughs> with Sharia law, which is to say they can still breathe. Exactly. You know, go out in public from time to time. Uh, what that looks like in terms of employment, in terms of education, remains to be seen. We've already heard reports of women being forced out of their jobs, told not to wear makeup to universities. Those sorts of crackdowns are already happening and have been happening in the Taliban-controlled parts of the country leading up until this point. So here's my thing about that, though. Is that our problem? Because one of the things that has frustrated me is turning on NPR, because sometimes I do turn on NPR to see what they're saying, and they are making this very soft-coded argument for why perhaps withdrawing from Afghanistan is a mistake, because they're going to go back you know, a half century in time in terms of their politics and rule of law there, women's rights are going to suffer. Women's rights suffer a lot of places in the world. That doesn't mean that we have troops there to mitigate the culture and change things. Um, I kind of feel like some of the discussion around culture and women's rights there in particular there is just being used as a proxy to say, well, maybe we should just have troops anywhere that there are problems. No, I, I would tend to agree with that. You know, there are parts of the world that are as hopeless as Afghanistan. You think about somewhere like Yemen, which has been in the throes of a civil war since 2015. You think of somewhere like Ethiopia, where, you know, ethnic minorities are absolutely brutally prosecuted and killed. Somalia, another prime example of a nation-building experiment that can't succeed. I think those things tend to lead to this almost bipartisan consensus that, you know, between the neocons and the liberal interventionists, the end goal is exactly the same. It's to, you know, try to hobble these regimes that we disagree with under the guise of, of human rights. But I, I just can't see it being our duty, especially given our track record in Afghanistan, right? I've, I've said again and again, what could we do in 21 years that we haven't been able to do in 20? I don't see, given how quickly the country fell to the Taliban, that we could have propped up the Afghan security forces in a way that would have sustained the, the regime. Any more than we already have. Right. They didn't put up a fight at all. Right. And I think it's important to note also that, you know, we talk about these trillions of dollars that went into funding those efforts and, and trying to build up this this 
kind of stalwart. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so much of that was just lost to corruption, was used to line politicians' pockets. In a way, there was no chance. And it was it was a corrupt government in so many ways. And that's one of the, the things that in Haley, in her op-ed, she mentioned that one of the temptations of the Biden administration is going to be that to get foreign aid to Afghans, you're going to have to recognize the Taliban's government that they inevitably set up in Kabul, mm-hmm. which is going to happen in just a matter of time. And the question is, like, should you be sending foreign aid to Afghans to help them through whatever plight they're going to suffer under that regime? Obviously, it feels good to say that we should, but it's going to be plundered. Foreign aid is always plundered by ruling regimes. And Americans just like to pat themselves on the back and say, well, we sent carts of this and that to foreign countries. We feel better now. But it doesn't actually work. Absolutely. No. And and we've seen it be ineffective, right? We were talking about the Afghanistan papers a lot in these conversations, and that, that was a set of papers that were FOIA'd, Freedom of Information Act, requested by the Washington Post um, as part of the um, Inspector General um, for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And those papers, they revealed that it was something like 40% of the aid that was sent to Afghanistan was actually just taken over by corrupt officials and, and corrupt parties. So we see this it's all in Hamid Karzai's basement. Essentially, we see this very low success rate. And it's impossible to pinpoint exactly the help that we want to offer. You know, there are ways that we can be helping Afghans, but it's not going to come in Afghanistan. It's going to come in the form of an escape route. Yeah. And that escape route is the thing that is in question right now and is sort of ripping up American politics. We are all arguing about how we are supposed to help, what our duty is to the people who are stuck over there. I think just this morning, the breaking news that we're looking at here on Tuesday of this week, and for everybody listening, watching, the news on all of this is moving incredibly fast. So when this inevitably drops, there's going to be things that have changed. But today, the G7 is meeting to discuss extending the U.S.'s August 31st deadline for withdrawing from Afghanistan. The Taliban predictably have said that they will not accept an extension of whatever agreement was previously reached for us to withdraw on August 31st. And it does seem like the global community wants the United States to stay for humanitarian reasons. What do you think we should do? I mean, I've been a complete supporter of withdrawing. But I do think that the way in which we're withdrawing is causing a lot of unnecessary pain and a lot of pain that could have been prevented uh, politically and bureaucratically here in the United States. That doesn't mean that we need to be staying militarily and that we need to be waging conflict against the Taliban at this point. I think that would be a fool's errand, especially given the last 20 years. But I do think if we want to make good on the number of Afghans we said we would get out, and that we intend to get out, we will need to stay past the August 31st deadline, just given how terrible the process has been so far. The the Taliban said there were going to be like, quote, consequences if we extended the deadline. My question to you is, as somebody who, who reports on this stuff and understands Afghanistan much more intimately than I do, is how serious should we take things like that coming from the Taliban? There are going to be consequences. If they shoot at an American, they're going to get blown up. And then we're going to send troops back in to occupy whatever block in which it happened. It doesn't seem to me 
if you think of them as rational actors, which we can question whether or not they are, that Americans are relatively safe getting to airports, right? Like they're going to be let to go to Kabul so that they can get out because the Taliban doesn't want an occupation to resume. Is that the way that you read it? Because when I turn on the news and watch American pundits talk about this, they talk about it as if like any American family taking a back road to Kabul is in immediate danger. My read of this has been that the Taliban just want to see those people go right through, goodbye, and then oppress their own people. Right. You know, I the State Department recently announced that they couldn't ensure the safety of Americans who were outside of Kabul getting to Kabul. That being said, I haven't seen any reports of American civilians being killed uh, in their travels and in their transit so far. I don't think that it would be foolish to call the Taliban rational actors. I do think, especially now that they have such a hold on the country, that they are trying to play for foreign legitimacy. Again, we see that diplomatically, and we see that in certain conduct that they've engaged with in other nations. So it's impossible to say whether, if we extend past that August 31st deadline, there will be consequences. You know, we saw Trump's initial withdrawal deadline of May 1st, once we blew past that, that attacks did escalate. Right. So we did see consequences as a result of that action. So based on history, potentially based on legitimacy, maybe not. Yeah. But the the thing with the the Taliban is that this morning that they did mention that they're no longer going to allow Afghans to leave, which is a a, a bit of a plot twist in what we've been talking about here. I want to talk to you about the refugee situation and what we owe Afghans or what we don't owe Afghans trying to flee that country. But the Taliban seems to have changed its tune on whether or not they support Afghans flooding into the Kabul airport to get airlifted out of there um, by the tens of thousands at this point. Um, Do you think that it is going to reverse the Biden administration's position on helping Afghans if the Taliban is no longer allowing people to even get to the airport to leave? Well, I say I will say that the Biden administration's position on helping Afghans get out of the country, especially those who did assist the U.S. military in the form of interpretation, engineering, driving, and so on and so forth, it's been to get them out. It's just that they've been dragging their feet and been caught in this bureaucratic immigration system quagmire for the past several months and years even. This extends far beyond Biden's administration. I do think that it will cause them to double down, perhaps only rhetorically, and perhaps send reinforcements to the airport as we saw him do, right? You know, he said that the troop withdrawal would be completed by August 31st. Then he sent 6,000 U.S. troops there to secure the international airport in Kabul. I think we'll see more of those efforts, but I don't think it'll lead to re-engagement. September 11th is what deadline? Because there's the August 31st deadline, and then September 11th is the hard, like, final troops and final airlifts out. So September 11th was the deadline that Biden set in his initial announcement that he would be ending the war in Afghanistan. Then, because the retrograde was going so quickly over the summer, he upgraded that to August 31st. Okay. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you're hearing on the ground, because I know you've got sources in and around Kabul who are experiencing what's going on on the ground there. What have you been hearing? Yeah. So in my work at Reason, I've been very lucky to report on interpreters who assisted the U.S. military, um, some of them upwards of a decade. Just these people who gave so much to help the U.S. and relied on the visa option that's available to them theoretically called the Special Immigrant Visa that was set up to bring these vulnerable people over to the U.S. because they're at risk of Taliban retribution. 
Now most of them have fled to Kabul, and most of them fled prior to the city falling uh, because they knew, uh, a lot of them knew, that it would be their only option to get out and that that's where the American evacuation efforts would be centered. Now, given that the city has fallen, though, there's been a rush at the airport. So even the people, these interpreters who have been emailed to get out of the country, they can't even approach the gates. How many interpreters are we talking about here? Because I feel like that's kind of the thing that people all constantly mention. Right. The interpreters. There can't be that many interpreters, but surely we're talking about their family, their extended families, and then other sorts of roles like helping at embassies and such. Right. So prior to our withdrawal, there was an application backlog of 18,000 primary applicants, okay. interpreters, other people who qualify. It was originally two years of service. Biden lowered that bar to one year of service to the American forces. And taking into account their family members, it was a total of 70,000 people that were waiting on answers and and just options to get out of the country. Other humanitarian groups have estimated that we now need to get about 80,000 of these people out, taking into account applicants and their family members. Okay. What kind of options do we actually have for relocating? Um, you know, the United States, of course, you know, this has been an allied NATO operation going on in Afghanistan. We don't bear all the responsibility for relocating people, but the, the discourse within the United States has gotten to be pretty bitter, uh, predictably, because we're in the post-Trump era. Part of the Trump era was all about changing the U.S. posture on refugees. Right. And it's important to mention that a lot of the issue we see now was a result of Trump administration policies. You know, a lot of the application backlogs that we see now in terms of the special immigration visa, it was a result of Trump officials dragging their feet and essentially just grinding this program to a halt and admissions to a halt. They reached a low under the Trump administration. Obviously, we weren't alone in Afghanistan. We had the UK, we had Australia, we had any number of European countries, and they're also evacuating the people who assisted their forces. That's an important part of our current withdrawal. That being said, right, we've kind of decided that we don't want to bring all of these people to American soil for fear of security risks. So we've begun evacuating our affiliated Afghans to places like Qatar, to places like Bahrain, uh, to Germany as well. And now there are plans to bring a couple tens of thousands of people, I believe the number is 30,000 people, to bases in the U.S. and Texas and Wisconsin. Well, I want to roll a clip here from Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska because the discourse on this has been picking up. Um, it's been become a little bit of like, I think, a false choice between getting Afghans out and getting Americans out. First of all, we don't even know how many Americans are still left scattered throughout the country. It's been incredibly hard for the government to track and the media to track. Uh, but Ben Sass, this is his remarks on the withdrawal of Afghans here from the country. First of all, a great nation is a nation that keeps its word. The American people need to understand who we're talking about here. We're talking about men and women who risked their lives to protect Americans. They fought hand in hand with our troops and we made promises to them. There are 32 million Afghans. We're talking about 60 to 80,000 people. The administration has been way too slow to get people out of harm's way. They can get them to Kuwait, they can get them to Qatar, uh, they can get them to Bahrain, they can get them to Ramstein in Germany and sort th through the, through the larger processing and bureaucratic issues there. But number three, when you fought on behalf of Americans to protect our people, you're welcome in my neighborhood. So did we make promises to anybody? We did. We set up this program because we recognized how dangerous it was for these interpreters. And we say interpreters colloquially. There are so many people. 
the risks that they took on to help American forces and to make our mission possible. You know, I, I was talking with one interpreter uh, about the risks that he personally faced. He, he got a, a letter from the Taliban pinned to his front door saying that he would be killed as a result and as an example of, of what happens when you help the Americans. And he told me, he said, you know, I was the eyes and ears of the Americans. That makes me the arch enemy of the Taliban. He said, I'm, I'm the worst in their eyes. Why do people in that position and throughout the occupation make the move to assist the U.S. occupational forces there. What do you understand to be some of the, the thought process and calculus for people on the ground? I've talked to a number of people about this because it's kind of impossible to imagine risking your life so significantly for a country you've never even visited. Um, but for a lot of them, it's just the American ideal, and, and they saw the freedoms and, and liberties that we as a country defend. And they wanted that for Afghanistan. It was it was a, a better future, and, and they wanted it to be a better future for their country. And I don't think many of them actually joined with the intention of, of leaving. I think they, they joined with the intention of helping their country and making a better country for their children. How do you know that? I feel like one of the things that we, we fall back reflexively on, and it's it's kind of the language of, of building democracy abroad, is this idea that people do, in fact, like want to um, bring American values to their country. They want to try to emulate our system of government there. And we've seen how it doesn't work. And I don't want to call like what you said necessarily a, a platitude, because that would be the words of J.D. Vance, who we'll listen to here in just a sec. But how do you really know that rather than just making a cold calculated decision about they don't like the Taliban and it would be much better in their interest in the short term to work with the Americans while we're on the ground there? Sure. I, I just take these people at their word. And most of these people had children who they wanted to see grow up in a society that looked like the United States. I don't think necessarily opposing just opposing the Taliban uh, was was their aim. I think it was actually a kinship to the United States. And, and you know, they took on the risk. I, I don't think you can do that uh, without having a, a pertinent emotional reason for it. I want to play the clip from J.D. Vance because he offered a response to Ben Sass's remarks on Fox News. Uh, it's a little bit longer, but we'll sit here and listen to it because strong words from this guy running for Senate in Ohio. I see that Senator Ben Sass went on national TV yesterday and attacked me for suggesting we should focus on getting our own citizens out of Afghanistan rather than the Afghan refugees. And he said, great countries honor their word. Of course, nobody disagrees with that. It's a ridiculous platitude. The question is not whether we honor our word. The question is who have we made promises to? Who do we owe an obligation toward? And to any leader of this country, the obvious answer should be American citizens. So let's focus first on getting them out of Afghanistan before we say another word about the Afghan refugees. Now, Senator Sass also said that he would welcome the Afghan refugees to his neighborhood with open arms. That's very sweet of him. I'm sure a lot of liberals will say very nice things about him because he said that. But the question is not whether we help the Afghan refugees. The question is, first, how do we do it? And second, how do we do it in a way that doesn't destroy our own sovereignty? So let's have an honest question about what exists in Afghanistan. According to Pew, 40% of the people there believe that blowing yourself up, committing a suicide bombing, is an acceptable way to solve a problem. So yes, let's help the Afghans who helped us, but let's ensure that we're properly vetting them so that we don't get a bunch of people who believe they should blow themselves up at a mall because somebody looked at their wife the wrong way. That is not real leadership. Real leadership is accepting the trade-offs of the situation, putting our own citizens first, and not dealing with fake platitudes because it gets people in the media to say nice things about you. 
Wow. Where to, where to begin? So I already asked you about promises that we made. We set up this program to actually get people out of the country. That's the express reason why it exists. So therefore, you would think that that is somewhat of an actual promise. I think there is also, in some, in some way, it is the spirit of the occupation of Afghanistan, which is in some ways the promise. The whole point of the occupation of Afghanistan after, you know, after we decided it was no longer to catch Osama bin Laden was to build a democracy there, build a society that was fully functioning and keep people safe. And we have failed in that mission. So I think what he's talking about is like, we literally signed a contract that we're going to get people out. Uh, such contract doesn't exist. You know, I, I take so much issue with so many things uh, in, in J.D. Vance's little universe. I think it's important to note, though, that these people, and, and I tend to be very pro-immigration as a rule. Sure. But these people, this cohort of people, are so patriotic toward our nation. They speak English already by virtue of working with the American forces as interpreters in many cases, but administratively in, in non-interpreter jobs. And these are people who clearly believe in American values and the American project. I, I can't think of people who would be better equipped and more entrepreneurial in, in what they're able to do to bring here. I think with one of the things that he mentioned was the, the sovereignty part, which I, I find to be a little bit puzzling, unless you understand kind of what people like J.D. Vance now think about issues like immigration. He's talking about the, the replacement theory, right? Yeah. He's, he's propagating this idea that Tucker Carlson has been pushing and tried to make a polite society kind of idea, which is that the Democrats are trying to literally replace American voters with foreigners. They talk about this with the southern border. They talk about this with Venezuela and with Cuba, even if those people are shown to likely be more conservative in their leanings, uh, our sovereignty, like refugee programs are a thing that exists. It doesn't threaten anyone's sovereignty. That's right. I mean, we've accepted immigrants for how long? It's the basis of our country, right? You and I wouldn't be here if there hadn't been an acceptance of people uh, over the, the course of our country's history. And and these these Afghans, right, they, they maintain very conservative, very traditional values. It's impossible to say that they're all going to vote Democrat. Yeah. Well, <laughs> traditional traditional in a sense that I don't think most Americans would still identify sure. with. And I, I think it's, it's pretty important <laughs> to note that J.D. Vance did not make up that quote about 40% of people being somewhat in favor of suicide bombings as a way to address grievances. That's from Pew in 2017, and the number is exactly 39%, 40% for people in the Pakistan region who, and, and this is the important note, and it's, it's, a, it's an important nuance, I do believe, is like, that they favor suicide bombings or other acts of violence. I don't know what that means, right? Like that, that broadens it very widely uh, to deal with grievances or, or practice Islamic law. That's a huge number. That is a huge number. That is almost one in two. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to respond to that besides just to say, I mean, that's a good point. Good point, right? Like sure. these are cultural differences that are in completely irreconcilable. Um, I don't know what you do about that. Sure, but take that survey among the people we're talking about getting out, these military-aligned U.S.-affiliated Afghans. I'm sure it would be a completely different breakdown, and that's largely why they assisted U.S. forces. They wanted a country that looked more like American values than Afghan values in a lot of these cases. But we've destroyed their home country. And one of the things that I don't think you can discount, and this is part of how terrorists are, are created in the first place, right, is that American actions abroad in the interests of 
um, killing terrorists or eliminating terrorism breeds new generations of children who have grievances for harming their communities, killing members of their family, and they become radicalized over the course of time as, uh, themselves. We've seen domestic attacks here in the U.S. launch for exactly this reason mm -hmm. in the past 20 years. And you have to believe that there is going to be a certain amount of people who are being exited from Afghanistan who, while they are grateful that they managed to get onto an airplane uh, and cram themselves on board, are really, really ticked off about the entire situation and being put in this position in the first place. And some of those people will engage in radical politics and radical Islam. It's inevitable. Some of them will. We need to look um, historically, too, just to your point more broadly before I, I answer your second point, right? Even the propagation of 9-11 in, in a lot of foreign policy circles, you can trace that back to the American troop presence in Saudi Arabia during the 1991 Gulf War. Osama bin Laden, uh, according to a lot of foreign policy analysts, was radicalized by the American troop presence there and the American troop presence in the Middle East more broadly. And that's what compelled him to start enacting a lot of these policies and a lot of this worldview. That sort of thing is important to note. At the same time, the people that we're talking about evacuating, they've already gone through a very serious security apparatus in order to assist the U.S. forces, a lot of vetting and a lot of security checks. Even if we bring them to the United States for expedited processing in the way that a lot of advocates are now proposing, you know, for processing at military bases in Texas and Wisconsin and wherever else the administration might see fit at this point, there will be processes that are put in place and, and background checks and that sort of thing. I don't know that it's it's entirely impossible that there will be some kind of ill effect in terms of an act of terrorism or an attack. I can't say that for sure, but the broad majority of these people just need a way out. No, I I mean I completely agree and I'm not necessarily saying I'm taking the devil's advocate position here, but you know what JD Vance is is channeling is what so many everyday people who I talk to, I know in my life they feel these things and they don't feel like they can say that kind of criticism in polite company. It's become sort of a taboo to even question things like this. And I understand that sentiment. Uh, the question that I think we have to ask is, you know, how are we going to actually integrate people into American life rather than just handling everything in crisis mode like we always do? Just, you know, bringing people here, dumping them in a community and saying, like, good luck. That's just not how this should work at all. But I feel like it always is how it works because we don't plan for anything yeah. when it comes to policy, uh, whether it be foreign or domestic. And that's kind of my overarching point in a lot of the things that I write. It didn't have to get this bad. We had options and we had this program's been in place since 2009, the special immigrant visa. It could have been streamlined in so many places over so many years. But now we're in crisis mode because suddenly the Taliban has taken over the country and these people who theoretically could have been processed earlier have all just been bumped up against a troop withdrawal deadline. It's very unfortunate. And, and now as, as advocates push for evacuation flights and for housing on American bases and quicker processing times outside of Afghanistan, it's kind of impossible to, to say we should have done it better because we don't have that option anymore. This feels like kind of an odd question to ask, but I'm going to ask it. What is your view or understanding of why we are in Afghanistan in the first place? And I ask that because you, as far as I understand it, were not even old enough to remember 9-11. And our mission there has changed 
uh, decade over decade since we've been there, and they've reframed the debate and then tried to like convince Americans that the the, the mission never did change. I remember 9-11. I was a hawkish teenager as a result. I was 10 years old when 9-11 happened, scared the living daylights out of me, and it made me into quite the neocon up until I was about 19 years old is when I snapped out of it. Um, but I supported all the kind of engagements that George W. Bush wanted to launch, and I probably would have wanted him to launch more just to keep the world and me safe. Uh, but you didn't grow up in that world no. at all. No, I, I kind of know the aftermath, right? I was, I'll, I'll say I was born in 2000, which is horrifying. Uh, and I, I have no memory of anything that brought us to Iraq, to Afghanistan, to those early speeches from George Bush that kind of galvanized a nation for this patriotic effort. I don't know any of that. I've, I've just kind of seen the deaths and the collateral damage and the security and surveillance that have emerged from that domestically and you know our reputation internationally as a result and it's it's difficult in a way to research and write about these things as somebody who didn't witness them um i i don't know that it makes me more objective but even as i i read through these accounts from the early days of 9-11 it's i can't imagine the world that created well, i think it things. does make you more objective because i think that people who grew up in that time or, or were of age in that time when 9-11 first happened there's a certain amount of stubbornness about the sunk cost element of afghanistan mm -hmm. and the war on terror where we all remember signing off eagerly on this entire adventure abroad and this idea of spreading democracy to keep us safe somehow and i feel like there's a, a shame involved with sort of being like, yeah, this was a mistake. And actually, yeah. um, we've wrecked an entire two generations of American young people um, at this point, 30,177 30, active duty um, military and veterans of post 9-11 have died by suicide. That is four times more than the death toll who have actually engaged in conflict abroad. We've wounded two generations of Americans, and I think that people just don't want to let go because of that being in vain aspect, yeah. right? Um, Crenshaw, Dan Crenshaw keeps mentioning this. We don't want people to think it was in vain, but like, what if it was? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's a really heavy emotional aspect of, of that specifically in, in that there are now veterans of Afghanistan who are sending their own children to the same war, right? Vietnam came That's close sick. in length. But this is now our, our longest engagement. And that's why I think it's so significant that Joe Biden is sticking by his withdrawal, that he, first of all, had the political guts to make it happen in the first place, even though this is something that the majority of the American public, including Republicans and, and veterans, wanted to happen. I think it's it's just very counter to the foreign policy establishment that we've seen a lot of the time in, in Washington over the past couple decades. And that's why we now see former secretaries of state like Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice both agreeing that we might need to re-engage militarily. I don't think that's in the interests of the American people anymore. The polls don't indicate that. How do you understand like that 70% number and how we got there? Because I, I don't even know when that transition occurred. Like I, I sort of like woke up a couple of years ago and all of a sudden was on the right side of public opinion when it comes to the war on terror for once. And I don't even know when the, the change occurred. Yeah. Was it the Afghanistan papers in 2019 that actually changed public opinion or was it somewhere behind there? Because Gen Z, like people of your, your age bracket, generally are, are completely against this entire conflict, again, because they don't have that experience of 9-11 to live with. Right. You know, we were, we were never 
part of that wave of patriotism and that that wave of self-defense, frankly, that brought us over to Afghanistan in the first place. Patriotism is a nice word for that. I try to be charitable. <laughs> right. You know, there was near universal support for the war, in my understanding, and in, in the results of polls in those early days when we first decided to go to war in Afghanistan. I'm not sure exactly when that occurred, but I do think that the American people aren't stupid and they caught on and they realized that we accomplished the strategic goals very early in terms of ousting the Taliban of that era and preventing al-Qaeda from using Afghanistan as another base for attacks. That, in combination with the Afghanistan papers and with this knowledge that nation-building isn't really what we signed up for in Afghanistan, and maybe it was a futile effort at that point, I think those things just combined and, and kind of pulled back the curtain. I mean, the Afghanistan papers show that we had a very clear sense landing our initial troops in Afghanistan of what we were there to do was capture, kill Osama bin Laden and his lieutenants and generals who helped make 9-11 possible. Almost all of those people evaded capture, uh, died of natural causes, or Osama bin Laden was killed 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you just had at the top levels of the military, Pentagon, and also Congress, just a, a battle over what the actual point was now. Are we there to build a democracy? Are we there to increase living standards? Like, it's not ever been clear to me that we were there to make sure that people had better Wi-Fi and access to television, but they tout this as successes. They tout this as like, this is the reason we're here. I don't remember that being the reason that we deployed in the right. first place. We we're there to capture Osama bin Laden, but 20 years later, they just try to make us forget it. Right. You know, in a way, it's kind of this massive PR campaign, right? And, and Craig Whitlock, who is the reporter for the Washington Post, who's done outstanding work uh, with the Afghanistan papers, his initial article was titled, uh, you know, At War with the Truth or something along those lines. Yeah, At War with the Truth. At War with mm -hmm. the Truth, right? And that's essentially what had to happen. And, and he's just cast so much light on the intentional deception that had to happen and the hiding of information in terms of what was actually happening in Afghanistan in order to keep people aligned with the mission. You know, even the president had so little knowledge, George Bush had so little knowledge of the particulars on the ground. And that, that really highlights just Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld said within the first year in one of his little snowflake correspondences that he sent out that they didn't know who the bad guys were. And this was this was after boots were already on the ground in Afghanistan that they didn't know what they were doing. Right. One of uh, one of the guys at the blaze, Jason Jason Buttrell, um, he was a special forces, no intelligence in Afghanistan on two deployments, and he talked on the Political Orphanage podcast the other week about how he came across villages where they thought the Americans were there to repel the Soviets. They thought the Soviets were still in the country right. and that the Americans were there to kick the Russians out. They went to some villages, Buttrell said, where they actually thought the Americans were Soviets. <laughs> like, just talk about like not knowing why we're there, not knowing what's going on on the ground. And when you understanding that when you go from village to village, it's not like they hate Americans. They just don't know who the heck you are. You're just people with guns. Yeah, exactly. they didn't know. Yeah. Um, Passing question or a closing question to you, Fiona, do you actually think this withdrawal is going to happen? Because you've seen it go on for 20 years of your young life. It doesn't seem to me that this is going to end the way that it currently looks like it's going to, that we're just going to leave August 31st, end of story. I just sort of feel like gravity is going to pull us right back in. I think it's going to be much slower than Joe Biden has billed it as. And even though it might be a naive 
view on my part. I'm still young. I can be naive, I suppose. I, I do think that this withdrawal will continue. I do think that Joe Biden knows that this will be a gift to future generations and that it's something that needed to happen, especially in terms of the American voters and what they actually want. And I think he hasn't been afraid to rebuke the kind of Washington policy elite consensus on this. I hope to God that's what happens. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's going all that well right now. It doesn't mean that it won't drag on miserably for a bit longer, but I do see it happening. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for breaking all this down. Tough topic, and uh, you know a lot about it, so thank you for sharing your insight on it. Yeah, anytime. We do like to wrap every show, though, by just kind of doing a little bit of a palate cleanser and just sharing some good news. So I want to kick it to you first, Afghanistan aside, because it is heavy on everyone's mind right now. Any good news in your world? Yeah, yeah. Um, my little sister started college yesterday, which is very exciting, and she's going to study film and, and television. And I wouldn't wish debt servitude on anyone. <laughs> It's a state school, film, so it's fine. Film school? Okay, well, it's a state school. Well, then maybe so we can she, justify it. <laughs> maybe she'll just, survive. I'm very proud. You know, she's sticking to her guns with the thing that she loves, and I'm, I'm excited. Is she going to be a filmmaker? Is that the idea? She, I think screenwriting is her intention. She's, that was my intention. Really? And here I am, not so screenwriting. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you I, want to uh, stage an intervention. Yeah, I, I went to school initially for for screenwriting mm -hmm. at Western Carolina University. Did two years, and then I was going to pivot over into actually like really expanding and filmmaking for my degree. And then I changed my mind to political science. There you go. But, I'm uh, a political science major, so you span <laughs> the full Harrigan continuum. I, I always had the belief that you could make movies uh, with any degree. Yeah. Uh, and I already knew how to work a camera. So I do hope that works out for where is she going? The University of Arizona. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. It's good. very exciting. I want to spend some time in Arizona before I'm dead. That's, yeah, you uh, should. I, I, my, my grandmother lived right outside of Phoenix. And the couple times that I visited there, I went, this place is for me. So yeah, come down to Tucson, better food than Phoenix, because we're closer to Mexico. So land of the red rocks. Highly recommend. Um, my good news is I I am putting out a book in October. I'm going to keep talking about it for the next couple of months here. But my book, How the Force Fix Can Fix the World, comes out October 26th. And next week, I'm taping the audiobook, which I am very excited about. I have never been put in a studio recording box to read an entire book before. But I'm going to the, the Audible remote location in North D.C., next week, right after we tape this show, and I have to spend five hours a day for four days reading through that entire book, like a narrator, how the force can fix the world. <laughs> can break out different accents to spice it <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah, no, it's, it was one of those things where I, uh, I had to try out to read my own book. Yeah, so it's actually They're taking applications for a student. Yeah, no, it's, it's like one of those like contract things where you like you get a book deal and then you try to put in there, you know, if there's going to be an audiobook, I would like an opportunity to read it. In most cases, uh. audiences want the author to read the book. They want to hear that person's voice, but they can still say no if you're awful. Couldn't so, get David Attenborough, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> if I talked like this, they wouldn't want me to read the book. So uh, I did an audition and they accepted. So I'm going to read How the Force Can Fix the World. And that comes out in October. So everyone pray for me and my vocal cords, but it should be good. That's all for our show this week. I'm Stephen Kent. I hope you enjoyed it. We have new shows every single Thursday and bonus content throughout the week on our YouTube channel. You can follow us on all the social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, at RightlyAJ. We'll see you next week.